0: Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Janti, and I'm a graduate student in physics. We'll be your hosts for today's installment of Veritalk. Today, we'll be discussing the elusive quantum computer with a PhD candidate in physics. And at the end of the program, we'll spend a few minutes discussing another computer with a very different sort of elusiveness, Google Glass. We've grown accustomed to the fact that every year, computers get more powerful, smaller, and cheaper. And with these changes, their applications in our lives grow in unexpected and even unprecedented ways. Will this trend, the popularly known Moore's Law, continue indefinitely? The basic technology powering the computer has already changed several times in order to make possible the march towards smaller and faster computers the first electronic, digital computers were built in the 1940s, with light bulb-sized glass vacuum tubes serving as the computer's fundamental building blocks. In the 1950s, electronic transistors replaced the vacuum tubes, and by the 70s, integrated circuit chips with multiple transistors started the miniaturization process. Today, billions of transistors can be placed on a single silicon chip, allowing ever smaller and faster processors. Many argue that it is soon time for another revolution in computing and then the next step is to go quantum. What exactly does that mean? How will a quantum computer look different from today's computers, and when can I expect to buy one? Here to answer those questions is Mikey Schulman, a PhD student in the ACOBE group at Harvard, who's working on making the dream of quantum computing a reality. Welcome to Veritalk, Mikey. Hi. Mikey, can you start us off with the very basics? How does t- today's computer work?
2: Sure. So. Today's computer is based basically on a system of a, a binary system, where we have a bunch of bits with, that take on one or two one of two values. It's either a zero or a one. A computer will do logic on these bits, so it will it will read values and and, and do operations, flipping bits or computing things based
0: on the values of the bits that are already there.
1: And so these bits are the transistors in today's in computer. today's
0: computers. It's a transistor. That's right. But everything from the simplest arithmetic function to the most complex uh, That's right. Twitter sonnet writing program, right, is e- built on just
2: zeros Everything boils down to, and ones. to zeros and ones, and, and reading them and writing them.
1: So, what what is a quantum computer?
2: So, a quantum computer is a computer based on a different paradigm, where instead of taking either a zero or a one, a quantum computer has bits that take on it can take on a value of zero, it can take on a value of one, or it can take on values that we say are sort of in between we have access to say 50% 0 or 50% 1 or 90% 0
0: and 10% 1 and anything in between that you want okay so mikey your brain is clearly a quantum brain my brain remains a relatively analog brain so help me understand this what does it mean to be between 0 and 1
2: yeah so you know actually i would say that everybody's it, it's it's hard to, everybody has a tough time wrapping their head around that and myself included it means that the 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 bits are truly in both states at once so you're not just
1: talking eight. here about, you know, it's not like it's point 0.2 or point 0.5. You mean something different than that.
2: That's right. It's it it can be it's it can be any anything in between 0 and 1 and and it is truly in both states at once. It's it's not it's not that we just don't know or or we can't find it out.
1: Is there any analogy we can think of uh in our experience that that something that behaves like that?
2: Uh, you you know you should just think of it as as instead of the number zero or the number one it's the number line it's all the values between zero and one would be a good way to think about it.
0: So uh, someone had once told me that what this means is that effectively every bit can be one of three values zero one or in between but actually you you're saying it's it's, it's infinity an yes. infinite range that's infinite right infinite values. and
2: that will turn out to be a sort of a double-edged sword it gives quantum computing its power but it also makes it very challenging.
1: How does that give power to quantum computing?
2: In essence, you can think that this is sort of a way of of parallelization, so that the fact that it can take sort of many values at once will allow you to sort of do many computations at once.
1: So you could use a system with two bits, and you could use it to solve a problem that would require many more than two bits?
2: Some some special problems, yes. Or at least we know some special problems that that's the case.
1: Is the idea, though, that we would be able to replace today's computers with quantum computers, that in some sense we'd be able to solve all problems that we're interested in with the quantum system?
2: I would have trouble saying all problems, but but there are definitely problems that that are... Very favorably done on a quantum computer, and there are plenty of problems that are favorably done on a classical computer. So
0: I'm sure we'll get to some of those problems a little bit later. But before we go there, let's return to a very simple level. So I think we're pretty familiar with the silicon computer built on a series of silicon logic gates. Uh, what is the what is the quantum computer built of? What is physically? What does it look like? So
2: that's uh, a question that's sort of unanswered at the moment. I would say that we're we're sort of back in the '40s when. Maybe there were light bulbs, and there were other candidates for it. There were some, uh, there were vacuum tubes, there were gears, mm. um, and there are a few promising candidates for what we're going to use to build the quantum computer. And I would say it is yet to be decided what, which is the best one. We we don't have the transistor just yet. So, as an expert, what would be your candidate? Uh, so. I study something called called spins. Uh, we try to encode information in the spin, which is a special property of the electron. Hmm. Um, there are other candidates which include superconductors, uh, uh, trapped ions, uh, and and also some very exotic ones that are less mainstream. Hmm.
1: So you mean you use the, the spin, which is this intrinsic property of electrons and other particles, um, as a, a sort of bit, this is the thing that can take on multiple values. That's
2: right. So the electron spin can point either up or down, and that's sort of our our zero and our one. But the electron spin can also point in any direction. It can point somewhere between up and down. Maybe it points halfway in between up and down, or maybe it points very close to up with a little
0: bit of down. and so two very ignorant questions. How do you change the spin of an electron and how do you read the spin of an electron? Yeah,
2: that's, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, there are a few ways. Uh, typically, with a single electron spin, you need to use magnetic fields in order to manipulate the spin of the electron. And there are actually a, a, a variety of ways of reading out the spin, but it turns out spin is very difficult to read out. And we generally sort of lock the spin to another property of the electron, like say, where is it sitting? Hmm.
1: So you're talking about having some array of electrons, uh, and you're talking about manipulating their spins in some way and then reading them back out as we would with a a sort of classic... That's
0: right, that's right. Okay, so what are some of the biggest obstacles between where we stand now, where the field stands now, and the tremendous potential for quantum computing? So, uh, as I said before, this this
2: inherent parallelization or the fact that we can have Many uh, two states at once or, or or a combination of two states at once is is also uh, a, a big challenge for quantum computing. So, in in a regular computer, if I have zero and one, if there's a little bit of noise and let's say instead of zero I had 0.01, a computer would just say that that's zero. That's one mm-hmm. percent away from from zero. Mm-hmm. In a quantum computer, if I had 0.01, well that's distinct from from zero. And so noise is a big issue in quantum computing, and and we know that quantum mechanical systems, they interact with their environment, uh, and they sort of lose their quantumness after, after some amount of time. And so combating this, uh, the, the, the interaction of, of the system with its environment or, or the ill effects of noise on the quantum system, that's basically the biggest challenge in
0: quantum computing. Yeah, to a quantum layman, it seems like almost anything could affect the spin of an electron, right? So how, how do you isolate your computing electrons from every other that's electron right. in, in the That's right. In fact,
2: everything does interact with the electron or any quantum system. And the question is, how, how strongly does it interact? And a lot of the challenge is, en- is engineering a system that doesn't interact with the environment. And and again, that's tricky because at the same time, you need it to interact with something so that you can control it. And so the, the idea is picking something that interacts only with the one thing that you're going to control.
1: Hmm. So to isolate it, uh, do you mean you have to... You- obviously there's physical noise sort of vibration, but maybe also temperature, is that an effect that's important? Or Th- magnetic fields?
2: That's right. So uh, in, in, in spins in the system that I study, we have um, any, uh, you know, if, if we trap them at room temperature, the electrons would basically be moving around too much or too quickly. And we put them inside what's known as a dilution refrigerator, and we basically cool them to about a hundredth of a degree above absolute zero. And once they're that cold, we can more or less neglect the effects of temperature.
1: Okay, so this isn't something that I could have in my backyard, you know, at... at
2: uh, so, you know, a, a, a dilution refrigerator is about as big as a regular refrigerator that you have in your home.
1: Just a lot more expensive. Just
2: a lot more expensive. But yeah, I think we're we're, we're quite a bit away
0: from someone having a, a quantum computer in his or her backyard. But in the <laughs> in the backyard quantum computer of the future, there will be a tiny chamber cooled to this incredibly cold temperature.
2: Or as I said, maybe someone is clever enough to figure out a better way to isolate these electrons or, or whatever quantum system it's going to be so that they don't need to be cooled so much. Hmm.
1: What's the state of the art in the field today? How many bits can you, can you manipulate? What does what today's quantum computer look like?
2: So, um, the, the f- few different implementations that exist are sort of each at different stages. Um, in spins, the state of the art is unfortunately only about two bits. But, but people are very, and I included, we're, we're very hopeful that, that it's going to be easy to, to grow that to more. Uh, there are other slightly more advanced architectures with maybe seven or eight bits, uh, and that's sort of the state of the art. So, so we're not really at a point yet where anyone is doing a computation that was not doable
0: on a classical computer. Uh, so, in an age when we talk about terabytes with conventional computers, you're still working at the level of two or maybe eight, if you're lucky, bits. That's right. Wow, that's incredible. So somewhere on campus, somewhere here at Harvard, you have two bits that you're manipulating to do computation. That's right, yeah. So have you been solving arithmetic problems with these, or what are they doing for you now? Um, So some people are trying to do basic
2: basic, uh, calculations with them. Uh, At the moment, not. We sort of just, you know, demonstrate that we can do uh, any operation that we want, and we don't really necessarily do quote-unquote flashy operations, although people have done, people have actually implemented very small-scale versions of algorithms that are are very conducive to quantum computers. One of them uh, is this so-called Shor's algorithm where you factor a number, you know, uh, so with 8 bits you can only factor a small number, like 15, but eventually someone will hopefully build a quantum computer and factor a number that we can't on a regular computer. Mm.
1: So earlier you mentioned that quantum computers might be better at some kind of operations than, than other operations. Is Are there other ones besides factoring large numbers? There are. That um, factoring large
2: numbers is the one that everyone likes to talk about because it has big implications for, for cryptography and such. But um, Can
1: you tell us how that works?
2: Sure. Uh, the basic idea is that uh, a lot of cryptographic algorithms work on the fact that it's very difficult computationally to factor very large numbers. So we're, you know, and and. Once you know the factors, it's very easy to multiply them together and get the big number again. So this is a, an inherently asymmetric problem. It turns out that on a quantum computer, it's not really asymmetric, that, that it's very easy to factor and also to multiply big numbers on a quantum computer.
1: And this is somehow to do with the fact that these, these bits can take on so many different states at once? That's
2: right. It's this inherent parallelism that exists. So
1: is the U.S. government uh, very interested in quantum computers? That's
2: right. So the U.S. government is 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 really funding quantum computing uh, heavily, which is obviously good for people like me who like to study this, uh, also because research always costs a lot of money. But um, there are some other institutions funding them.
0: So as I understand it, the state of the art in encrypting online data is to rely on this factorization. So uh, is one of the implications of quantum computing that very soon we're going to have to work out a different way to protect data?
2: Um perhaps although there there are ways uh, of doing it that you know would would be different and wouldn't rely on it um, there are in fact schemes in place and already commercially available that use what's known as quantum encryption and this is again this sort of inherent par- this inherent parallelism or the fact that things can take on multiple states to 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 encrypt things and and one of the things that quantum encryption can guarantee you is is actually the fact that no one is looking at at your data so so one of the sort of spooky and weird things about quantum mechanics is that when you measure something, you change it. And you can use this in order to find out whether or not someone is eavesdropping on you. Wow. And you can use that to have provably secure communication, which to my knowledge, you can't really do with, any, with, with anything classical.
1: So let's say I'm not interested in, you know, uh, transmitting super secret information across the internet, but really what I want to do is stream last night's Mad Men um, faster. Is, is quantum will quantum computing help me with that?
2: Uh, to my knowledge, I think not. That that just streaming that data is not is not really something that that the quantum computer is going to help you with per se. Uh, it really, at, at the moment, people you know people are looking for other things to do with a quantum computer. But at the moment, that's not a computationally difficult problem, and so that's
0: not necessarily something that a quantum computer is good for. So, what are some of the other really exciting, really promising prospects for this technology?
2: So, one of the one of the exciting ones is is the search algorithm. So, if I have a very large database and I need to find or a very large set of anything, and I need to look for something inside of it. it turns out you can use a quantum computer to find it significantly faster than you could with a regular computer
1: okay, so Google might also be very interested in
2: exactly the so computer. google Google would,
0: would would benefit very much from Or potential like Google
1: competitors
0: exactly and eventually will we see a quantum internet or is this is the, is the data the amount of data that these computers are able to process going to be simply too much for our existing infrastructure to to handle
2: you know, people have been throwing around the term quantum internet actually for some time. Uh, that is that is sort of a, a term of the art. I would say it remains to be seen whether, you know, or, or to what extent everything having to do with data and the internet becomes quantum or not.
1: So we keep talking about, you know, the US government being interested in this and, and me downloading things. But how long are we talking about when will I be able to go and, and buy a quantum computer?
2: So. I would say that the, the first step is sort of building one no matter what the cost, or or at least financially. And, and you could imagine that maybe after some point, the US government or Google has a couple sitting in a basement somewhere in one of these very expensive dilution refrigerators. And not to be too optimistic, but I would say we're not too far away from something like that. It, you know, it could be 20 or 50 years.
1: And 20 or 50 years is not too far.
2: I would say that that's not too far. Uh, you know. Computer was invented in, in, you know, in the 40s and 50s. That I think we can wait 20 or 50 years until until they're commercially available. I see that as a, a a separate and at least at the moment less heavily invested in challenge. And and at least in the current implementations, I don't really see
0: how you would have one in your in your backyard. So how do we invest? Or a less crass way of asking this question might be, are there commercial ventures now currently um, working on these problems?
2: Uh, there are. There are some uh, sort of commercial inven- uh, ventures that have uh, government backing that are sort of just working in parallel with academic institutions. Mm-hmm. There are things like this company known as D-Wave, uh, which has been in the news and, and attracted some some amount of interest that, that claims to be building a quantum computer as well. Uh, Maybe without getting into it, it's 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 somewhat controversial whether or not they're building a quantum computer. C-
0: can you get into it a bit? How, sure. Why is it controversial?
2: So D-Wave claims to be building a quantum computer out of uh, superconductors, which is an extremely promising architecture for quantum computers. Can
1: you just tell us what a superconductor sure. is?
2: Sure. A superconductor is this very strange state of matter uh, that... Uh, will flow electrical current without any resistance. So zero measurable resistance, that means zero dissipations. An electron will travel from one end of the superconductor to the other end of the superconductor without scattering off of anything, without interrupting its path. And it turns out superconductors are actually pretty common. Uh, Aluminum, for example, is a superconductor if you cool it down in a dilution refrigerator. Aluminum is everywhere. Um, And so this company, D-Wave, Uh, says that they are building a a quantum computer out of these superconductors. And they're relying on a very different architecture for quantum computing, something known as adiabatic quantum computing. Uh, And the problem with this is they are essentially building what most people would call some sort of thermal annealing machine. It's really a computer based on on cooling a system from from a hot temperature to a cold temperature and isn't necessarily completely quantum mechanical.
1: Can it solve the same kind of problems as a quantum computer?
2: In theory, uh, an adiabatic quantum computer can solve the same kinds of problems, although uh, with with many caveats, and it's very difficult to do so, and it looks like that uh, the the product that, that D-Wave makes is not really doing that. That doesn't mean it's not coming up with... It, that doesn't mean that it's not doing computations that are that are not challenging in other ways and that are not interesting and that are not extremely useful. You know, you can see Lockheed Martin bought one of these. But... To my knowledge, most experts in the field say that this isn't really a quantum computer.
0: So, Mikey, if we could ask you to step up to the pulpit for just a minute, how do you think quantum computing will change society? Whenever it does arrive, be, it, be that 20 years from now or 50 years from now, how are things going to look different thanks to quantum computing?
2: So, one thing you actually touched on earlier is this Moore's Law idea. Uh, that it, you know, the Moore's Law says every every two years, the number of transistors that or the number of, of bits, transistors that we're going to put on one of these chips is going to double. Eventually, that has to run out. Eventually, the transistor is going to be less than the size of an atom, and then how do you how do you continue to do that without some sort of revolution? Um, other things have to do with with power consumption of these chips, which also, uh, if Moore's law continues to scale as it does, you're going to need a small nuclear reactor to power your computer, and that's obviously not practical. Uh, one of the things that 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 a quantum computer can do is it essentially takes takes the scaling to a new level, and so what I mean by that is Every time I double the number of transistors on the chip, in a current computer, I double its power. In a quantum computer, all I need to do to double the power is add one more, one more bit. And so this really takes the scaling from this linear scaling where I double the, the number of transistors, I double the power, to a much more favorable scaling. I add one more quantum bit, and can be very, very tiny, and I've doubled the power.
1: Wow. Well, this sounds super exciting, um, but it sounds like we'll also have to be patient. Um, So let's switch to a computer that's uh, much nearer to a uh, store near us. Uh, That's the Google Glass project. Recently, Google started handing out their newest hardware project, this miniature computer mounted on a pair of eyeglasses, to selected testers among the general population. Did either of you apply to be an ambassador to the Google Glass program?
2: I did. Oh, you you did. Did Did you get selected? I did not.
1: Uh, so, why did you apply? What What's What do you find interesting about this project?
2: You know, I really think this is something well, for a few reasons. One, just because, every, you know, to to say that you, you are one of the first testers of the Google Glass would be really cool. But also this is, you know, this is a, a new sector of our lives that technology is invading. And, and I think... You know,
1: what sector is that? What do you mean? Our
2: eyeballs, that <laughs> <sector>. <laughs> Yeah, your eyeballs, you know, it's it's really, it's on you at all times, not the same way that your cell phone is in your pocket at all times, but this thing is on you and, and constantly interacting with you. Um,
1: so I don't know. I I just watched the video actually recently for the first time, and I was struck, in some sense, it doesn't feel to me like what I associate with a computer. It seems more like a really fancy video uh, recorder or camera or communication device. In some sense, it seems to be focused on transmitting what you see in front of you to people, you know, either uh, people on the phone with you or uh, recording it for later. Um, and that seems like a different sort of uh, mentality of what it means to be a computer.
2: Sure. I don't think it's doing any, any you know, hard work computing problems or, or raw processing, but I think it's
0: enhancing your life uh, in, in, in ways that a quantum computer will not be able to do. So at some time, we've all been irritated by people whom we're trying to have a conversation with checking their cell phones, right? Isn't Google Glass just a way of allowing your interlocutors to constantly be checking their cell phones while talking with you? It seems socially like a huge annoyance. Uh, what do you think, Mike?
2: Uh, maybe, but I would say you're not going to notice them checking their cell phones anymore, so may- maybe it's a moot point.
0: But you probably still notice them tuning out, right? Or maybe their eyeballs will be flickering. Maybe. Or
2: or maybe we're ushering a new, uh, a, a new, you know, sort of time into society where this is going to be become the norm or people are going to get better at, at zoning out and still paying attention a little bit. Uh, so, I, I mean,
1: hope not. Laura, yeah.
0: Laura, what do you think? <laughs> can you imagine 10 years from now it just being the norm to be to speak with people who may or may not be recording you as you speak to them?
1: Uh I'm still I still don't have a smartphone, so I'm behind the trend here. You really don't. <laughs> I really don't. Wow. Um so I think I'll resist the Google Glass trend also for a while because I like to, you know, focus on what I'm doing and not be distracted by the internet, which is infinitely distracting. Mm-hmm. Um but I'd love to hear, Mikey, what what you wanted to do as an ambassador, you know, what, what you would use these these glasses for. Um
2: you know, I when I applied I admit I hadn't really thought about it. But but just seeing, you know, the videos like you said and, and it, it looks like there are things that it's going to enhance, uh, whether it's scanning a barcode or uh, taking a video, or uh, I, I I don't know what. But but you know, it's it's it sort
0: of seems to me like it's your cell phone just it's freeing up your hands. Um, We're broadcasting, of course, from a university, and one thing that I've seen discussed in a lot of forums about Google Google Glass is the way it's going to disrupt the classroom. Right? How will a teacher know that students are paying attention and not browsing YouTube? Right? Um, it's hard for me to get my ma- to wrap my mind around a, a world in which people may or may not at any time be serving the internet. I
2: would say that that problem already exists. Uh, everybody is bringing his computer to a, to class, right and you know your, your your screen is not facing the instructor. that's
0: true.
1: It's going to make uh, things like driving and even walking as a pedestrian even dangerous. I mean I've had pedestrians walk into me because they're checking yeah. their phone, you know, and I can imagine this is only going to make it worse.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, on the upside, it might make it a lot easier to listen to podcasts wherever you are. So (laughs) with that, I'd like to thank you, Mikey, for joining us. Oh, My pleasure. And Laura, thank you as always.
1: Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Mikey.
0: Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and to our guardian protectors in the GSIS Office of Communications. Our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.